Look at the Paris Commune. That was imagination and power. That that's this expensive, expensive political uh, model that it, it created, open to imagination, to human imagination, and collective imagine, human imagination, in the definition of of, uh, of emancipation. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello and uh, welcome everyone to today's meeting. Uh, my name is Helen Scott and I will be the moderator today. I want to begin by thanking our sponsors, Haymarket Books, Tempest Collective, New Politics and the Havens Rights Centre. And thanks also to everyone who did the hard work of planning and organising behind the scenes. So the title of today's event is The Legacy of the Paris Commune, 1871 to 2021. 150 years ago, the workers and oppressed of Paris briefly created a new society in the name of equality, democracy and freedom. Rejecting the cruelty and injustices of bourgeois rule, ordinary people, mostly anonymous, developed an alternative system based on human need and liberty and they sustained it for 72 days. As Marx put it, the people were storming heaven. France had lost the war with Prussia and the new conservative and alarmingly pro-monarchy government in Versailles signed an armistice that betrayed the ordinary people who had fought against the reactionary Prussian empire. When the French army was sent in to seize cannons from the National Guard, they were met with hundreds of workers, men and women, who waged a fierce resistance, even though they had endured months of famine and deprivation. The French soldiers were ordered to fire on the crowd, but they refused, and many instead joined the rebellion. The commune was proclaimed on March 28th, and while its life was brief, its achievements were legendary. They included abolition of the standing army, arming of the people, transformation of factories into worker cooperatives, a democratic and accountable system of representation, separation of church and state, limits on the working day, abolition of interest on debt. Communards fed the indigent, set up free schools and orphanages, and advanced the equal participation of women and migrants. All of this, of course, horrified the ruling class, both in France and internationally, and the Versailles regime created a new army in collaboration with the Prussian state to wage war on the commune. On May 21st, they broke into the city and began a campaign of brutal and bloody repression. By the end of the month, the experiment had been destroyed and thousands of communists slaughtered. In the coming period, thousands more were executed, incarcerated, condemned to forced labor, deportation, or exile. 
But while they crushed the commune, they could not destroy its legacy. The communards have been remembered by and have provided inspiration and instruction for the international working class as countless generations engage in struggles for freedom across the world. Today's meeting will explore the meaning and significance of the commune for our own time. We have three speakers. First, we'll hear from Carolyn Eichner, uh, who is a feminist historian at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and author of the forthcoming The Paris Commune, A Brief History and Feminism's Empire. Her book, Surmounting the Barricades, Women in the Paris Commune, has been translated as Franchir les Barricades, Les Femmes dans la Commune de Paris. Phil Gasper, our second speaker, is co-editor of New Politics and a member of the Tempest Collective. He's the editor of an annotated edition of the Communist Manifesto and of Imperialism and War, classic writings by V.I. Lenin and Nikolai Bukharin. And our third speaker is Gilbert Ashkar, who teaches at SOAS, University of London. He is the author of many books and a contributor to many publications. And most recently, he wrote the chapter on the Paris Commune in the, fourth, in the new book, Revolutions. Carolyn, Phil and Gilbert will speak each for a, a, up to 15 minutes. After that, they will have the chance to ask each other questions before we open up to questions from the audience. So if you do have a question you want to ask one or all of our speakers, please feel free to enter it in the YouTube chat at any time. Okay, so to begin our program, uh, let me turn to our first speaker, Carolyn. Thank you very much, Helen. And thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this. And I'll just begin. On the 50th of the Paris Commune, 72 days, the Executive Commission of the Union des Femmes, the Union of Women for the Defense of Paris and Aid to the Wounded, declared, quote, the women of Paris will, at the moment of supreme danger, on the barricades, on the ramparts of Paris, give their lives and their blood for the defense and triumph of the commune, that is to say, of the people. Until recent years, histories of the Paris Commune told of men making revolution and women burning Paris. The myth of Les Petroleuses accused communard women of torching the city, the city as the French National Army stormed in and crushed the uprising during its final brutal bloody week. The only real recognition of any women's participation had been of Louise Michel. Most histories of the commune devoted a few lines or paragraphs to Michel. One woman was enough. And rather than addressing her wide-ranging involvement in the revolution, ranging from planning a uh, program of universal mandatory secular education to uh, fighting on the barricades, or examining her post-commune revolutionary activism and theorizing or her literary production, most authors reduced Michelle to a militant caricature, the Red Virgin, married to the revolution. 
when not ignoring or marginalizing women's ex extensive participation in the commune, scholars and journalists briefly, superficially, or inaccurately portrayed communard women as either hysterical arsonists or sexualized stereotypes. In reality, thousands of women played central roles in the Paris commune. Feminist and socialist organizations had established the preconditions for the uprising as France's second empire waned. During the commune's short life, activist women formed grassroots political clubs, established vigilance committees, joined military brigades, aided and fed the wounded, published newspapers, created producer-owned cooperatives, theorized post-capitalist societies, developed co-educational schools, operated soup kitchens, and rounded up military deserters. Working class women such as Marie Rogissard, a battlefield cook who organized women to arrest deserters who refused to defend the commune, and Marie Lemonnier, who served as a battlefield nurse and later built barricades, committed themselves to a revolution that immediately upended hierarchies of power. Elite socialist women, including the well-known fem feminist novelist, journalist, and social critic André Leo, who published the socialist newspaper La Sociale, and Elizabeth Dmitriev, a 20-year-old Russian who established the citywide Union des Femmes, strove to enact feminist and socialist goals they had theorized and planned before the insurrection. The Paris Commune was the revolutionary civil war that rocked the 19th century and shaped the 20th. Considered the go a golden moment of hope and potential by the left, and a black hour of terrifying power inversions by the right, the commune occupies a critical position in understanding modern history and politics. A 72-day conflict that ended with the ferocious slaughter of Parisians, the commune represents for some the final insurgent burst of the French Revolution's long wake, for others the first successful socialist uprising, and for yet others an archetype for egalitarian socioeconomic and political change. The commune looms large in histories of France, 19th century Europe, 20th century revolutions and civil wars, as well as socialism, anarchism, and feminisms. Militants have referenced and incorporated its ideas into insurrections across the globe, throughout the 20th and into the 21st centuries, keeping alive the revolution's now iconic goals and images. Innumerable scholars in countless languages have ex examined aspects of the 1871 uprising, taking perspectives ranging from glorifying to damning this world-shaking event. The commune stands as a critical and pivotal moment in 19th century history, as the linchpin between revolutionary pasts and futures, and as the crucible allowing glimpses to alternate possibilities. Upending hierarchies of class, religion, and gender, the commune emerged as a touchstone for the subsequent century and a half of revolutionary and radical social movements. Women's participation in the commune has been historically marginalized for two reasons. First, while communard women engaged in a broad range of political acts, their actions constituted politics outside of government. The commune government did not enfranchise women, and communard women sought neither the vote nor a formal governing role. They understood the commune as transitional to a new egalitarian society. 
Militant actions outside of formal governmental structure have been considered less significant, even when more effective. Because the commune emerged as an experiment in radical direct democracy, extra-governmental political roles by both women and men held particular importance. Yet they are often overshadowed by the commune's formally elected government in many accounts of the revolution. The second reason that communard women's activism has been consistently minimized or ignored, ignored is because it was women's activism. Observers trivialized women's endeavors during the commune, and most scholars and journalists subsequently disregarded them as superfluous or irrelevant. Until recently, the only acknowledgement militant women received was condemnation and demonization for unwomanly and irrational behavior. While women's roles and the gendered nature of the uprising receive greater attention in more recent works, it is rarely fully integrated into the scholarship. Authors persist in considering the commune as a male event in which women participated. Instead, the commune was a radically new political moment that upended not only class hierarchies, but also those of gender. It was an event in which the fundamental centrality of non-governmental political actions by both women and men revealed the emergence of a radically direct egalitarian democratic form. Accusations of disorder and prostitution reflect the particularly gendered judgment women faced for transgressing gender and class boundaries. For example, Paris police reports described Françoise Marty, a boot, a boot stitcher who fought on the barricades as, quote, a woman of immoral conduct, quote, close quote. And Marguerite Prévost, a candy maker who served as a battlefield nurse, as a savage woman. This is a typical accusation reflecting conservatives' characterizations as communards as uncivilized and, th and thus unfrench. The Reverend Emile Delmas, in his chronicle, termed communard women, quote, monsters altered by blood, women in name only. These representations cast activists outside of womanhood, outside of civilization, and even outside of humanity. Such critics created the dehumanization and, and denigration that rationalized the French National Army's bloody week massacre of communards. Who were the communard women? The official post-insurrection report presented to France's National Assembly um, by General Félix Appert noted that, quote, a significant number of women had a very active, active role in the insurrection, close quote. The report categorized those arrested as, quote, nearly all nomads living lives of disorder and prostitution, close quote. In fact, most communard women worked in textile-related trades and were permanently domiciled. Some high-profile women came from elite backgrounds, like the novelist and journalist André Léo, the orator Paul Menck, and the teacher and militant Louise Michel, and the writer Anna Corbin krukowski Jacla. On the commune's 10th day, Union des Femmes founder Elizabeth Dimitriev arrived in Paris. Traveling from London at the behest of Karl Marx, who asked her to report to him about the uprising, Dmitriev went beyond that charge. She immediately met with representatives of both the newly formed revolutionary government and the working women's movement, 
The 20-year-old Russian internationalist activist and theorist subsequently issued an appeal to the women citizens of Paris, proclaiming, quote, Paris is blockaded, Paris is bombarded, women citizens, we must conquer or die, close quote. The resultant Union des Femmes, with over 1,000 adherents, emerged as one of the most extensive and effective organizations during the Commune. Maintaining 24-hour posts in nearly every arrondissement, this highly centralized association acted to defend the uprising in the short run and to reorganize women's labor and to produce their own cooperatives in the long run, declaring, quote, women's work is the most exploited. Its immediate reorganization is thus of the utmost urgency. Dmitriev implemented a top-down socialist feminism influenced by Russian feminist cooperative populism and Marxist, and Marxist centralized authority. She was one of the few communard socialists directly influenced by Marx. Seizing the revolutionary moment to push for change, Dmitriev worked to give working women control over their own labor and lives. The Union des Femmes requested and received resources from the commune government, the only organization to successfully do so. Yet, Dmitriev never sought a seat in the government, instead prioritizing feminist economic and social issues. While feminists had focused on gaining political rights under the Second Empire, France's previous government, the Commune brought larger possibilities. Most women sought neither the vote nor a formal governing role. During the Commune, feminists saw the potentials of liberation expand beyond parity with men under an oppressive regime. Working class women strove for concrete change in their lives, not the ability to vote. Suffrage had an abstract value, one recognized primarily by those without day-to-day -day concerns of survival. Most bourgeois feminists, along with the majority of the city's elites, had fled Paris under the 1870 Prussian siege of Paris, and more left after the March 18 revolt. The feminists who remained in Paris, primarily socialists and members of the working class, sought change not only regarding gender, but also of class, for both personal and political reasons. One critical group, socialist feminists, considered the commune the dawn of the social revolution and saw new political forms on the horizon. They understood the commune as trans transitional to a new egalitarian society. Female communards thus engaged extensively in a broad range of political acts, actions that constituted politics outside of government. Other kind of women's activism and socialist feminisms emerged during the commune. A more radical grassroots, intensely anti-clerical militancy arose among clubistes, working class women who participated in political clubs, both women-only clubs and mixed-sex clubs and who took the insurgent opportunity to contest hierarchies of religion, class, and gender. Still other communard women advanced their revolutionary politics on the page. The novelist and journalist Andre Leo edited the influential newspaper La Sociale and wrote for other commune newspapers. A feminist socialist theorist and activist, Leo took an intellectual, literary, and journalistic approach to the revolution. Working to influence the commune gov commune's governance and defense, she did not hesitate to condemn the commune government when it took undemocratic or sexist measures, such as when it censored right-wing publications or outlawed women from the battlefield, 
a measure that many communard women ignored. As Leo argued, quote, women naturally participate there just as well as men, close quote. In the insurgency's final week, communard women and men battled Versailles troops on the streets of Paris. Communard women built and fought on barricades, defending the revolution and its promises of equity and freedom, taking political action and carrying on the nearly century-long tradition of insurgent Parisian women. Communard women were nonetheless portrayed by Versailles as being, quote, completely ignorant and lacking any sense of morality, close quote. The official Versailles government report concluded that women were fooled or enticed into participating in the uprising, explaining that the battlefield cooks, quote, follow the insurgent troops without knowing what they are doing. The report claimed that they and, quote, the battlefield nurses, the barricade, barricade fighters, all of these women received their instructions and orders from the Central Committee of the Union des Femmes under the authority of Mademoiselle Dmitriev, close quote. The authorities attributed all, insert, all women insurgents' activism to one mastermind woman, a Russian, finding it incomprehensible that so many working-class women intentionally became revolutionaries. Denying women's agency and political consciousness, the Versailles report lumped together all communard women, unable or unwilling to recognize their range of feminist, socialist, and or anarchist politics. The report concluded the reasons, quote, women were drawn to revolutionary movement were as follows, living in concubinage, co uh, cohabiting outside of marriage, demoralization, and debauchery, close quote. In this telling, Women's uncontrolled, irrational sexuality, their, quote, thirst for pleasures unknown and ardently desired, close quote, drove them, rather than a desire for equity and liberation. A combination of immorality, lust, and irrationality thus drew women to the revolution, according to the Minister of War report. And once involved, their weakness led them to fall under the sway of the Russian Elizabeth Dmitriev. Rampant right-wing fear that foreigners instigated and perpetuated the insurgency intensified when the foreigner was a female. Other critics of the commune similarly assessed and sexualized communard women. Conservative anti-commune author Maxime Ducamp wrote, quote, they had tossed off more than their bonnets. They dropped all of their clothes, close quote. Rather than seeking citizenship and equality, as they professed, Ducamp contended that their actual goal and, quote, secret dream was having multiple men, close quote. Emile Zola, also a commune opponent, similarly denigrated activist women, pronouncing that a female communard carrying a rifle, quote, has more coquetry than political passion, close quote. He maintained that women considered the gun merely an alluring accessory one that would, quote, without a doubt, make other citoyenne female citizens jealous of the martial allure of battlefield cooks, close quote. Zola expressed even greater hostility toward les raisonneuses, women who reason, insisting, quote, one must flee from this type of political woman as one does from the plague, close quote. Women who presumed intellectual or political authority posed the greatest threat to Zola where women on the battlefield appropriated a particular type of masculine space, to Zola raisonneuse 
trespassed in the male realm of greater significance, that of politics and ideas. The suggestion of female political leaders particularly infuriated him. He termed the commune socialist feminist leadership a sort of feminine central committee, an idea that he found completely absurd. Disparaging communard women did double duty for Zola and simultaneously criticizing male communards. From the bourgeois perspective, such women lived improper and immoral lives, even when one discounted politics, merely by working and operating in the male public world. Interlaced with bourgeois male fears of an inversion of class and gender hierarchies, communard women threatened to turn their world upside down. The commune emerged as a site of alternate governing and political engagement, one in which extra-governmental forces played integral and extensive roles. Rather than a strictly masculine revolutionary governmental and militarized milieu, the commune emerged from and consisted of multiple strands of revolutionary socialist feminisms, playing out in political clubs, journalism, labor organizing, vigilance committees, educational reform, and in a range of battlefield functions. Overthrowing existing gender hierarchies as well as those of class and religion constituted the fundamental goals of the Paris Commune. Recognizing not only women's extensive roles in the Commune, but also the ways in which the Commune itself was gendered, allows a clearer understanding of the revolution its broader context and its legacies. Thank you. Wonderful, thanks. Thanks, thanks so much Kelly, for that important corrective to the distortions and omissions of the role of, of women communards. Our next speaker will be Phil Gasper. Phil. Thanks, Helen, um, and uh, thanks to my uh, fellow panelists and everybody who helped uh, organize uh, uh, today's panel. Um, I'll start with a uh, with a personal anecdote. Um, I actually remember very clearly the first time I learned about the Paris Commune. Uh, it was almost exactly 50 years ago during the Commune's uh, 100th anniversary. Um, I grew up in Britain and uh, one of the newspapers in Britain, I think it was The Observer, uh, ran an extensive photo spread over several pages in its uh, Sunday magazine. Um, and I found those iconic black and white photographs captivating. <laughs> and I was astonished to discover that for two months uh, in the 19th century, uh, a people's uprising had taken over one of Europe's greatest cities. Of course, I was uh, far from the first to be captivated by the commune and its uh, and those and those images um, for the past 150 years, it has had a central place in the revolutionary left's imagination. Uh, imagination, perhaps second only to the Russian Revolution. Marx wrote the Civil War in France, uh, one of his most widely read books about the commune, of course, uh, and he earned himself the name the Red Doctor for his fiery support of the communards. Lenin. Luxembourg, Trotsky, Gramsci, all wrote about the commune. Um, for Lenin, it was an important model against which the Russian Revolution could be compared. There's a story that on January the 9th, 1918, by the old Julian calendar, Lenin is said to have danced in the snow to celebrate the survival of Soviet rule for 73 days, one day longer than the commune. But all of these figures thought of the commune not just 
as a romantic inspiration, but as an example from which it was possible to draw political lessons for the socialist movement. Uh, Enzo Traverso, in a recent article, warns us against seeing the commune as part of some kind of linear or inevitable progression towards socialism from 1789 to 1830 to 1848 to 1871 to 1917. Now, that's obviously correct, but it doesn't mean that there aren't lessons to be drawn from both the commune's achievements and from its cruel defeats. Traverso also tells us that the communards did not consider themselves as the actors or forerunners of a communist revolution. And that undoubtedly was true of most of them, although there were also many socialists, communists, and anarchists who played leading roles, followers of Auguste Blanqui, members of the International Working Men's Association, and uh, many others. But I think it's also important to remember that it's not just the ideas that people have in their uh, heads that shapes what they do, but the historical circumstances in which they find themselves. In the German ideology, Marx and Engels wrote that they saw communism as, quote, the real movement which abolishes the present state of things, uh, rather than an ideal to which the reality will have to adjust itself. Its development, communism's development, is an expression of the inner contradictions of capitalist societies. So Marx described the commune as, quote, essentially a working class government, the product of the struggle of the producing against the appropriating class, the political form at last discovered under which to work out the economical emancipation of labor. But at the same time, it had, quote, no ready-made utopias to introduce by people's decree, no ideals to realize, but to set free the elements of the new society with which old collapsing bourgeois society itself is pregnant. Well, sadly, bourgeois society didn't collapse at the time of the, uh, of the commune, but the idea here is that these elements can emerge uh, no matter what people think the, the, the end goal is. It's the part of a historical movement which can um, uh, move to a destination that perhaps the people that initiate it uh, don't, um, don't think of. Whatever the communards thought they were doing, the government and ruling class in Versailles rightly saw the commune's existence as a threat to their own wealth and power. The spectre that Marx and Engels had described in 1848 had reappeared. So the Commune instituted a series of radically democratic measures. Helen uh, mentioned many of these in her introduction. Um, they declared that the flag of the Commune is the flag of the World Republic and gave everyone the right to hold public office regardless of nationality. They declared the separation of church and state Debts were suspended, the interest on them annulled, pawn shops were shut down, um, uh, workplaces where owners had fled were allowed to reopen as uh, workers' cooperatives. Uh, night work was abolished. This is mainly in the bakeries. Um, and a system of workers' registration cards was also abolished. Um, and, of course, in May, the victory column in the Place Vendôme uh, which is a symbol of French imperialism, was pulled down uh, after several weeks of, uh, of preparation. 
But it was the measures aimed at changing the way that political power was exercised that Marx regarded as the most important and that are potentially the most relevant for us today. Political representatives were to be under the control of the people who elected them. They would be subject to immediate recall and paid no more than the average worker. The term public servant was to be taken literally. Uh, as Marx put it, instead of deciding once in three or six years which members of the ruling class uh, was to misrepresent the people in parliament, universal suffrage was to serve the people, constituted in communes, as individual suffrage serves every other employer in the search for the workmen and managers in his business. And it is well known, Marx goes on, that companies like individuals in matters of real business generally know how to put the right man in the right place, and if they for once make a mistake, to redress it promptly. Well, that may be a rather idealized view of the business world, but I think Marx's point here is, is clear. Just as importantly, the commune was to be a working, not a parliamentary body, executive and legislative at the same time. And Marx tells us that uh, the first decree of the commune was the suppression of the standing army and the substitution for it of the armed people. Similarly, the police force was at once stripped of its political attributes and turned into the responsible and at all times revocable agent of the commune. So abolitionism is not a new idea. All of these changes illustrate Marx's general claim that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. Marx began his political life um, in the early 1840s as a radical Democrat, and he never abandoned that perspective. Communism for him meant that society would be under the democratic control of the associated producers. But the political structures that exist under capitalism, both in Marx's day and in ours, make a mockery of genuine democracy. The ready-made state machinery has to be broken up and replaced with new institutions and structures that allow real democracy to flourish in both political and economic life. It was the glimpse that the commune gave of how this might work in practice that inspired Marx and Engels and gave them a deeper understanding of what a revolutionary transformation would be like. Um, and that has continued to inspire socialists since then. Stathis Kuvalakis argues that Marx saw the institutions of the commune as essentially transitionary and partial expressions of deeper trends oriented towards social emancipation, not as something to be copied as such. Uh, I agree with that. The particular form in which democratic control from below can be exercised will be different in different historical circumstances. The commune, for instance, lacked institutions of democratic control based on the workplace, which is one of the characteristic forms that emerged in the 20th century, not just in Russia in 1905 and 1917, but in many other revolutionary rehearsals since then, from Germany in 1918 to Hungary in 1956, Chile in 1972, Portugal in 1974, and other examples. Of course, the commune also made many mistakes, tactical, strategic, and on matters of principle. 
Marx criticized the communards for failing to pursue the retreating French troops to Versailles. They failed to nationalize the Bank of France. And many have pointed to their failure to grant full equality to women, despite the heroic role that Carolyn described that uh, uh, women played in the life of the commune. One conclusion that Marx and Engels immediately drew was that the working class needed political parties of its own. Loose formations were not enough to influence the course of events. Their insistence on this was one of the reasons for the collapse of the International Working Men's Association over the next few years. Among the communards themselves, there may have been a certain kind of naivete about the intentions of the old regime, which had retreated but was not destroyed. In his classic history, Lissagaray bemoans the communards' superstitious belief in their governmental longevity and failure to see that they were in a life and death struggle with the Assembly of Versailles. Certainly, they were not prepared for the brutal ferocity of the final onslaught that brought their utopian experiment to an end. It's a lesson that anyone who wants to change the world today should not forget. Ruling classes never leave the stage of history willingly. They are prepared to employ the most barbaric methods to hold on to their power. The challenge for any revolutionary movement is how to defeat such intransigent opposition without employing methods that will undermine its own ideals. If the communards had played their hand better, could the commune have succeeded? I'm sure it could have held out for longer. Perhaps the ending could have been less bloody. But long-term survival seems a highly unlikely possibility. There was considerable support and even some brief uprisings in other French cities, but France remained largely a peasant country and there was far less support in the countryside. Even if the communards had somehow managed to defeat the old regime, France would have found itself surrounded by hostile neighbors. Almost 50 years later, the Russian Revolution in 1917 was a gamble that similar events, similar revolutions, would soon take place in other countries and that revolutions elsewhere would offer them support. Now, that gamble was eventually lost, but it, that didn't seem inevitable in advance. In France in 1871, by contrast, the odds against them uh, were that much greater. In that case, why has the commune been so inspiring? Perhaps because, like a brilliant flash in a dark sky, it illuminated the landscape and showed what a different future might look like, even if it was not possible for that future to arrive in 1871. In 2021, we faced social and environmental catastrophes that the communards could not have dreamed about. We need a different future more than ever. That's why I think it's worth pausing to celebrate the commune's achievements and learn from its mistakes. Then we have to roll up our sleeves and organize for a better world in our very different historical moment. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Phil, for giving us that vision of working class democracy and, and drawing out the implications for, for future revolutionary movements. Um, that brings us to our last speaker for today, um, Gilbert Ashkar. Over to you. 
Thank you, Ellen, <clears throat> and uh, I'm very glad to to be part of, of this this, this uh, discussion and this uh, distinguished panel. Um, um, well, uh, I mean, Helen, you yourself, and Caroline and Phil have already said uh, a lot of things. So uh, I will try to add a few comments and elements of discussion uh, uh, to to what has already be, been said. And uh, I want to 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 start by this uh, affirmation of uh, of my view that uh, the Paris Commune is even more relevant today than uh, than any time in, for instance, the 20th century. Um, it is a, a model that I think is today, can be today more inspiring than any other uh, revolutionary model that we have seen in the, uh, in the 20th century. And partly that is, that is because it wasn't the, uh, I mean, it was defeated, but it did not degenerate. Unlike, for instance, the Russian Revolution or many other revolutions, we know the Russian Revolution, we can say it was very inspiring. Uh, yes, but for how long and uh, what did it lead to? Uh, what kind of degeneration did it uh, uh, go into, which produced one of the ugliest regimes of the 20th century? So in that sense, the Paris Commune remains uh, a more inspiring model because it, it, it showed the antidote to the kind of degeneration of 20th century experiences. And that is by the kind of model uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of power, or the model of, of democracy that uh, it, uh, it created, it put into, into, into practice albeit for a very short period of time. And therefore, I think the, the Paris Commune is regaining um, its character as a positive model, as it was for Karl Marx and for Friedrich Engels, uh, who, who had you know, uh, a lot of, of praise to the, 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 what the, the Paris Commune achieved. Whereas we know that uh, later on, and especially in the 20th century, uh, it was turned into a negative model. Uh, Phil just uh, uh, um, recalled this uh, well-known story of Lenin dancing in the snow. Right. Uh, but uh, the, the whole idea was that we are not repeating the, the mistakes of this uh, of, of the commune, and the, so the commune was, uh, and there, were, there have been writings about this, uh, the, how the commune was was mostly portrayed as the the negative model, that is the the the, the compendium of of, uh, of mistakes that should be uh, avoided. Uh, and uh, and yet, I mean, today I think it is regaining its uh, its uh, positive role, its role as a positive model, uh, with uh, the, the accent, the emphasis being put uh, again very strongly on uh, the, the 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 model. And uh, on this, I, I may have some some uh, uh, further comment. Uh, then, I mean, uh, on top of what has been said. Um, uh, Phil uh, um, quoted very rightly so, that's a very important uh, characterization of the commune uh, by Marx. He quoted the, the, the famous uh, uh, sentence in the um, 
civil war in France, where Marx says uh, uh, it is um, the it, it was essentially a working class government, the produce of the struggle of the producing against the appropriating class, the political form at last discovered under which to work out the economical emancipation of labor. That's a very well known characterization. I'm interested in what precedes that, which is much less uh, um, uh, quoted, uh, where where uh, Marx says, and I, I, I read from the same quote, it, it, it comes just uh, before uh, what I just read, when he says the multiplicity of interpretations to which the commune has been subjected and the multiplicity of interests which construed it in their favor show that it was thoroughly uh, a thoroughly expensive political form while all previous forms of government had been emphatically repressive. And uh, this is a very interesting formula, an expensive political form from expansion, uh, expensive with A, of course. Um, uh, that's very interesting indeed, because that's all the, the creativity and this, uh, this uh, very radical democracy that the, uh, the, the commune represented. Uh, uh, it has been so much uh, uh, described as uh, a moment of, uh, of, uh, of joy for, for the communard before the, the, the tra- very terribly tragic end, uh, a feast, and has been described as a feast. But that was a huge moment of, of realization, what uh, became a slogan in May 1968 in France, uh, written on the walls, uh, um, uh, the imagination in power. Well, imagination in power, you want to see it, I would say, uh, as Marx and Engels said about the dictatorship of the proletariat. Well, look at the Paris Commune. That was imagination in power. That That's this expensive, expensive political uh, model that it, it created open to imagination, to human and collective imagine, human imagination in the definition of, of, uh, of emancipation. And so that's, I would say, that the most powerful about the, 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 the commune and the most original about the, the commune, this form of political emancipation as a condition of economic emancipation. But the key point here the economic emancipation was only partly achieved through some of the measures of the commune. That wasn't what the commune did uh, most uh, uh, remarkably. It is the political emancipation which is the most important, and that is the the radical democratic model that the uh, commune uh, uh, produced. Uh, That was the model, um, the, the, the only model we can think of, of really radical democracy. Going back to the the whole thinking about radical or direct democracy, as it's also called, direct democracy, uh, which inspired from the the thinking of Rousseau, which inspired even the French Revolution in in its radical moment, uh, and up to the commune, where you have the same inspiration, this inspiration of, of, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the fact of superseding representation, bourgeois representation, the bourgeois representative government, uh, and uh, and going into this uh, uh, real, uh, 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 I mean, political power based in the uh, uh, um, uh, social collective and not 
in the and in, in the uh, uh, in, I mean in the political institution itself as uh, a separate apparatus. So uh, the fact, in fact, uh, most of the um, the other the social measures of the commune, the social and political measures of the commune that were mentioned by Helen, by Phil, by by Carolyn. Uh, uh, for the, the, the free and mandatory education, the separation of uh, religion and state, uh, the, the labor legislation, the trade union rights, etc., etc. Well, most of, I mean, most of these measures have been implemented later on by capitalism. I mean, capitalism could absorb uh, these measures, not uh, granting them uh, generously, but, uh, I, I mean, conceding them to, to, uh, to social struggle. Uh, 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 so th- that's that's not what is the most uh, original about the commune. What is original is are the other measures, the abolition of the state, in, in some way. That is the abolition of the state as a as a as a uh, uh, separate institution, uh, whether the armed apparatuses or even the bureaucracy itself into turning uh, the the even the, the, the administrative functions into elective and revocable. Uh, 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 positions and a limited pay scale. I mean, that's a radical, uh, a very important dimension of that, the limitation of the pay scale, which is also often uh, uh, forgotten. Uh, uh, that goes against the, 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 the very essence of the bourgeois state, much more than any other measures of, of the commune. And that's where the commune was really this uh, a form at last discovered, or this government of the working class, or this, uh, you know, th- th- that's where the, the commune really was uh, 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 crucial and uh, and uh, uh, um, uh, uh, essential. And um, I mean, uh, and that's in that sense also that it uh, it uh, uh, it represented a, a major uh, historical moment of of this uh, Caesar of uh, by the the population of a city of uh, Caesar of of uh, seizing power. Uh, the whole population of the city, I mean, the, 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 especially the, the, of course, the privilege had mostly left the city when, when it happened. So that was the, 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 uh, the working class, basically, and the, the large and the broader meaning of working in that, in that regard, that, that was seizing power. And that was absolutely uh, uh, um, uh, decisive historically. Let me quote from also another a comment by Marx in, in one of his letters, uh, he wrote a number of letters to Kugelman and others during the commune. The, the, there's another letter to the same Kugelman, which is very often quoted, but here I'm quoting from an earlier letter when uh, he, uh, in April, uh, he is uh, uh, discussing the fact that the, the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie, the, 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 the bourgeois government of, uh, of Thiers, uh, knew that the 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 the, 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 the Parisians would face uh, uh, almost fatal uh, uh, circumstances. In that sense, I, I fully agree with uh, Henri Lefebvre's uh, book on the, the Commune, which unfortunately has not been translated into English, as far as I know. But uh, in my view, it's one of the best comment on the Paris Commune. It's a 1965 book. 
uh, where where he you know he he derides he I mean he he rejects all these discussions about what should they have been done had they done this or that and etc. I mean whatever they would have done there was there was no way that such a revolution such a model could triumph and last that, that, that there was no way and secondly the key point here and that what Marx was commenting is that the bourgeoisie the, the bourgeois government knew that the the uh, the german the, the prussians were uh, i mean on the outskirts of the city and that was in itself the most important dissuasion and so marx says uh, of this of this presence of the Prussians, the bourgeois canaille of Versailles were also well aware. Precisely for that reason, they presented the Parisians with the alternative of taking up the fight or succumbing without a struggle. In the latter, and so, uh, I mean, he had no illusions, Marx, I mean, about the, the possibility, the ultimate possibility of eventually uh, triumphing in this uh, under such conditions. And so he continues, he says, in the latter case, the demoralization of the working class, if it had s- s- uh, surrendered without struggle, would have been a far greater misfortune than the fall of any number of leaders. Note that he was writing in April, I think he was not um, expecting the degree of, of, of violence, of barbarisms of, uh, of the, the French uh, uh, bourgeoisie. Uh, um, and uh, uh, I mean, although he could have, because any knowledge of, of, the, 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 of colonial violence, of what was going on in the colonies and by the, the same French uh, uh, imperialist government uh, should have uh, uh, convinced anyone that it would be uh, willing to, to be uh, so so uh, um, murderous as to kill up to 20,000 uh, people. I mean, that's the general estimate, between 10,000, 20,000, most of them killed cold-bloodedly, executed. So he carries on saying, the struggle of the working class against the capitalist class and its state, that's very important, has entered upon a new st- phase, a new historical phase, that means, with the struggle in Paris. Whatever the immediate results may be, a new point of departure of world historic importance has been gained. That's a very important characterization that uh, I think also should be kept uh, in mind. And uh, the, another point I want to make is uh, the one that uh, David Harvey made in uh, Rebel Cities, uh, with reference to Henri Lefebvre, precisely, uh, about the, this model of revolution and the role of the city, the urban model of, uh, of, of, of revolution and, uh, and democracy. And I think we are also witnessing in the, in the radical left, and we should anyhow, <laughs> I mean, this is imposed by, by the, 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 the evolution of the, of the time, of society, of economy and all that, a shift back from this model, the Russian-inspired uh, uh, model of the factory-based uh, 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 democracy, or the Soviet, if you want, to the urban-based model of workers' democracy, which does not exclude the workplace uh, organization, but the workplace organization is for democratic control of, 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 uh, of the conditions of labor, uh, whereas the urban base is the real place of political power. 
uh, and that is uh, because the, the urban setting, and if, even more so actually at the time of, uh, if you go back one century ago, uh, is where the intersectionality, to take a very uh, um, uh, topical uh, term, the intersectionality uh, can, can really function. Uh, it's not in the factories that, for instance, you, th this will be uh, if you take the, 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 what you had in Russia in, in, in 1917, but that's more at the level of the general, uh, the broader uh, society as represented in the city. And add to that the changes in the working class, the, de the partial deindustrialization in the most advanced countries. Uh, uh, in part, we have a reversal to the early industrial model uh, in, the, in the changes of, uh, in, uh, under neoliberalism in particular of the, the mobility, much greater mobility, uh, precarity, uh, um, the, and in many countries, not all countries, but in most countries in the world, uh, unemployed. Uh, and the rest. So this, all this uh, leads us to the fact that the city is the main anchor of life. And, uh, and uh, that's where all struggles can merge. Uh, uh, and that's where this intersectionality can also uh, be fully uh, implemented, as well as the class unity and central coordination uh, beyond the division of, of labor. That's where uh, people are, are united uh, again. A final point very quickly, because uh, that's uh, the, the end of, of the, the, the time of our time. Uh, uh, there's also the problem uh, which hasn't been resolved yet of, uh, of every revolution. The fact is that when you think of the revolutions that uh, have uh, been taking place, they have been uh, uh, most of them, most of them, and especially those radical left uh, uh, revolutions, they have been linked to historical circumstances where the repressive apparatuses or the armed apparatuses and the armies in particular were paralyzed or defeated. You think of the Paris Commune, it's in the wake of the defeat of the French uh, in, of France uh, versus uh, uh, Prussia in the Franco-Prussian War. You think of the Russian Revolution, it's in the, on the wake of the defeat of, of, of Russia in the First World War. And you can carry on because uh, the, even the, the revolutionary wave that spread in Europe uh, in the wake of the Russian Revolution spread also mostly among the countries that had been, where, uh, whose armies had been defeated. Um, and, and so the, 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 that points to uh, uh, this uh, this major problems of uh, of of revolutions uh, which is the the ability uh, as has been said country member maybe Phil or Caroline I don't know or Helen uh, um, the the of course the the, the capitalism uh, would be willing to 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 go to uh, very ferocious uh, um, extremes in order to to preserve its uh, its privileges, and uh, uh, that's why um, revolution should be a, a, a really a, a, a very democratic and very majority, if you want, moment uh, of uh, of action. Uh, in that sense, this uh, I would uh, um, uh, refer to this uh, comment by by Noam Chomsky in his uh, recent, uh, I think, New York Times interview, uh, where he he said that he is a conservative, between a lot of quote marks, 
in the sense that he believes that uh, radical, I mean, uh, changing society and, and politics should be done by the vast majority, can't be by just uh, the act of minorities, as has been the case in in uh, other uh, I mean, instances in in the past century, in particular. So that's very important. That also that means the ability to 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 uh, to to win over the 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 rank and file uh, of uh, of the repressive apparatuses uh, to win them over uh, especially i mean the army where it's actually easier than for the the police given the the different type of selection of course but it's very important to 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 win them over uh, in the case of revolution and the more uh, uh, the more uh, really popular the more uh, majoritarian uh, a revolution is the easier this task can be achieved in order to allow for uh, the smoothest possible uh, uh, um, transition from the capitalist state uh, to uh, to well to a socialist state. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I love that concept of imagination in power and the the lasting impact of that. Um, we're going to go to audience questions because we don't have that much time and there are quite a few people who have things to say. Um, there are a mixture of specific and general questions. So I'm going to, to read out a number of them and then have each of you come back as you as you will. Um, okay, first from Jim Dingerman. What does the panel make of the calculations made by the commune in being able to militarily resist the forces of McMahon? How did they think they were going to win? Um, from Heather Ritchie, re related to that, why didn't the communards march on Versailles to eradicate Thiers and his ilk? Bill Balderston, what contradictions existed within different layers of the working population in the commune? And then one last from Jim again. How did the Prussian army encircling Paris cooperate with the repression of the commune? What are new interpretations and perspectives to this? So I think that's enough for now. Um, we could go in the order in which you pre presented, if, if that's okay with you. Begin with Carolyn. Sure, thanks very much. And uh, thanks for the questions. Okay, let's see. Um, I quickly jotted them down and hopefully I can read it. Um, okay, so how did the commune think about it was going to uh, defend itself against the French army and why didn't they march on Versailles? Um, you know, I th the, they did not want a violent uh, conflict. I mean, it's um, the when Versailles troops pulled out of the city, um, the commune members of the, the the, those who were in power at this point, um, controlling sort of the, the commune, um, the central committee of the National Guard who were in power, uh, wanted to negotiate for the most part. Um, they recognized that their chances were slim to none. Uh, they, the, the Parisian National Guard was the citizens' army, and that existed, and that was became the commune's army, but it was poorly trained, poorly um they had, you know, very poor uh, weaponry and supplies, and um, but Thiers refused to recognize the commune as a legitimate opponent. It was just, you know, they said this is not a legitimate. He said this is not a legitimate opponent, 
and uh, we have to restore order. And so, you know, they, the commune very reluctantly went into the violent, uh, the, the conflict. And in terms of why they didn't march on Versailles, this was a point of serious contention. The Blanquistes, the followers of uh, Auguste Blanqui, uh, which included Louise Michel at that point, um, very much wanted to uh, march on Versailles. Um, Louise Michel actually wanted to go to Versailles to assassinate uh, Thiers in the National Assembly. She thought, you know, thought that it would be like she would sacrifice herself and Thiers. But um, there was just too much pushback against that, and they waited. So um, those are the kind of logistical kinds of decisions under intense pressure. Uh, you know, contradictions amongst the workers the thing about the commune um, is that I know uh, Gilbert was talking about the the, the primary sig- primary significance of the, the politics, and um, from my perspective, uh, the politics, the economics, and the socio cultural aspects of the revolution are equally significant. Um, I think that the the kinds of uh, change, the kinds of opportunities that the commune provided was on these on, on all of these levels and which were intersecting indeed. Um, but uh, the there there of course were different kinds of of goals and desires, um, but the kind of unifying things were uh, being able to work and live and feed oneself, you know for on the most fundamental thing. Um, you know, for women to be able to have their work recognized, women were paid much less than men only because they were women, not because of the, the work, you know, created less wealth. Um, but there, the, the divisions were not intense in, amongst the working class at all. And they were very, there was, you know, ex- organization was kind of extraordinary given the time frame. I mean, very much of a bottom-up thing, uh, you know, which is why this idea of the commune as a direct democracy, I mean, there's so much attention paid to the government itself and, and to the fact, I mean, the, they they demanded uh, legitimacy. They demanded a vote, and there was opposition to the value in that. Also, there was opposition from the working class. Um, to, you know, why do we need that kind of legitimacy? So, you know, perhaps there were more contradictions and conflicts between you know the working class and um, the, the, the the those in the government, many of whom were more uh, labor aristocracy or um, more elite people. But I'll, I'll just stop with that so we don't run out of time. Thanks, Carolyn. Phil, do you want to give it a shot? Uh, well, I'll just jump in with a couple of things to add, because I agree with most of what, what Carolyn said. You know, I mean, I, I'm not a military expert. I don't know what would have happened if they had marched on Versailles. I mean, it, it's possible that if they had, we'd be looking back and saying, why did they so foolishly uh, march on Versailles? The 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 National Guard was very much more more a defensive force than a than a um, uh, offensive one, and yeah, Carolyn is right, very poorly trained, and it actually got worse over the the two months of the of the Commune. And successive commanders resigned because it was impossible to impose impose discipline on the um, on on the Guard. Um, I also think there was a, an element of uh, the Commune was very Paris focused and Paris centric, and um, controlling Paris was what they, you know, what they wanted to do. They didn't. Some of them didn't see this as a larger, larger battle, and and that's why I said I thought there was perhaps some naivete in in that because 
looking back, it's very clear that there was uh, a, a deadly enemy that they you know, that they had not they had not defeated. But uh, they may not have had a clear idea of how you know of how to how to deal with that, apart from trying to you know maintain their maintain their control over over Paris itself. Um, and I think in terms of divisions, I mean, this is a very short experiment. So if it had lasted longer, I'm sure we would have seen more um, uh, differences emerge. Um, but there is a kind of euphoria to uh, the, uh, an initial um, seizure of power. Um, and they enacted so many uh, measures so so quickly. I mean, you know, such a short period of time. Within days, they are <laughs> they are radically transforming the way that the city is run. Um, so mostly, though, you know, the divisions did not uh, emerge in very sharp in very sharp form. I'm sure if if it had lasted longer, then there would have been more you know political um, battles to have been won amongst the the communards the, themselves. Um, uh, but it was it was so short lived. We didn't really see that, um, it, you know, in the two months that it existed. Great, thanks. And Gilbert. Yeah, um, yeah. What can I add to this? Well, I think about how why didn't they uh, march on, on Versailles? The answer is in uh, what I I mean this letter by by Marx. The Prussian factor I think is most decisive, and we know historians know that uh, the Prussian factor was very much on in the mind of the communard. Uh, the, the what we have the, the about the the minutes of the debates and all that show very much this awareness of the Prussian factor. Now you could have thought that they could have bet on the fact that they could fraternize with the Prussian uh, soldiers and uh, etc. Well, that's a huge bet, you know. And when you are in a city, that's not uh, easy to 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 you know organize the city to walk out of the city and march in taking such uh, a risk. And secondly, yes, as, as mentioned, uh, uh, that's the National Guard, that's a defensive uh, body, essentially. Uh, a march on Versailles would have uh, requir required a, a very different kind of organization. That is a military type of organization, much closer, much more like, uh, you know, what we are used to when we speak of the military than what the, the National Guard is. And uh, uh, in, in that sense, uh, you know, had the communar, as was reproached to them, including by Marx at some point, uh, instead of electing or organizing elections and then the commune and then all these measures, uh, uh, decided to organize a centralized army led by a general to, 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 uh, to attack Versailles, well, they wouldn't have been this model that we, 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 we think of, you know. We wouldn't have seen what they did. So I think for, for I mean, exactly like Marx was saying in that letter, I mean, that whatever would happen to them, what they did here was so important. They were really taking a historical, a world historic, he said, uh, 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 kind of initiative. And this world historic initiative is not military. It's the reorganization of society. That's very crucial. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, beyond that, all these discussions, as I said, I referred to that one moment, uh, had they done this or that or all that, whatever they would have done, there was no way that such a model of government could prevail 
in the in the in the in the 1870s. I mean, uh, you know, you don't need to be basic Marxist to understand that there are at, at least that there, there should be there are some some conditions for that. And actually, the the best would uh, that could have. I mean, the best. It's not the best, but if we had if we imagine them attacking Versailles, you would have had a civil war in France anyway. And a much larger civil war, uh, uh, based on the rural, because they, they didn't, they couldn't win. That's why one of their weaknesses that the countryside, that there and that the rural society was much larger than it is uh, today in, in, in at that time. So, uh, in any any way, I mean, this was doomed to fail, and the grandeur, the, the, what is grandiose about it, is not. Uh, 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 practicality. It's the model, again, the political model and the social and all that. Uh, I, I, I agree that all of this is important, but what I was saying, and I think it's uh, undisputable, is that capitalism could absorb most of the social measures, but it can't absorb this uh, dismantlement of the state. And that's the most radical uh, aspect of, 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 uh, of the commune. Wonderful, thank you. So I'm going to throw out a few more questions. And I think the way that time is going, this will probably be the last round. So in addition to coming back to the specific and general questions, maybe just if you have any last thoughts, um, now would be the time. Um, the first question is is quite specifically um, targeted at, at Carolyn. I, I like uh, Michael Joseph says I liked your emphasis on the role of women. Why is Peter Watkins' film on the Paris Commune not better known? Women are seen as spontaneously angry, militant as a collective with no single leader. Steve Lay asks. Uh, is the depoliticization and recallability of the police the same as police abolition? In today's conditions, wouldn't the whole police force need to be completely dismantled? Um, and then I'm going to collapse a couple of questions about Kautsky's analysis um, of the Paris Commune um, and uh, jump to this one, which is, is a, a more general question, which is, the, the the Paris Commune has been a positive model for the revolutionary left. It was also a positive model for Kautsky and many others who do not identify with the revolutionary left then or now. How can this be? Okay. There are a few more questions, but I'm sorry I'm not going to get to them all. So I think I'll, I'll let our panelists chew on those to close us out. Okay, thank you very much. Um, okay, so in terms of the Watkins film, I think it's not, it's a really basic reason that it's not well known because it's so long. I mean, honestly, I think that, you know, it, it can't be a normal theatrical release and, you know, it's, what is it, six hours long? I, I mean, it, it's magnificent and, you know, it's now, I, I can't actually remember what year it came out, but it's been out over 15 years, 20 years. Um, and, um, yeah. So, so, and the way that he uh, treated um, the role of women was really impressive. And you know, the way you know, as uh, you had said, that they're sort of you know not uh, centralized. And this is this is the case. I mean, just like the men. I mean, I think this is sort of the fundamental thing I'm saying. Like, just like 
there were, you know, male communards of many political stripes with many kinds of goals and interests. The same thing for women. It's just they were the other half of the population. And this is really, you know, uh, as you know, it's, it's been this kind of push to get scholarship to recognize that to understand the commune, you have to really recognize the full integration of women on, on every level, with the exception of the formal government in which they did not want to uh, participate. I mean, this idea of the um, the commune as this capacious uh, form uh, is really hits it on the nail because this was a different kind of government. And it was one that was not only formally elected by universal suffrage, which was not universal. It's 50% suffrage. You know, the idea that universal suffrage is, you know, only includes half the population is, is a bit of a misnomer. So it was not only this formal, the politics, but the this uh, politics outside of government, the extra governmental politics that men and women, you know, working class with all of these different kinds of interests, anarchists, um, different kinds of socialists, and obviously many with no kind of uh, connected to any kind of uh, uh, ideology in particular, they, pr they put pressure on the formal government and they also instituted all sorts of measures that reflected the fact that this was a very different political form. This was a political form that had jettisoned the existing class and gender hierarchies. And there, I'm not saying there were no hierarchies, but they had jettisoned the previous. And so this is what also, this, I th this speaks to the question of how can the commune be seen as the, this kind of uh, ideal mo or this ideal for the revolutionary left as well as for reformists or other kinds of progressivism i think it's it's capaciousness it is it, it people can in many ways take from it different things in some ways that leads to a misinterpretation etc but i think that it reflects the true radicalism and truly de democratic nature of this revolution. Um, and uh, let's see, was there anything else? Um, oh, uh, in terms of the police, uh, the, one of the very first things the commune did was to take over the prefecture of the police and call it the ex-prefecture of the police. I mean, the French police are a national police force. There's a, the, the, it's a recognition of that its impressiveness was enormous. It's, um, you know, operations of, of, of spying on citizens, et cetera. Um, I think that this question of, um, you know, can you, can something like that be reformed remains, uh, very questionable. But um, anyway, so I, so I think um, I think I was able to kind of tie in my last remarks in my answers to the questions. So thank you. Wonderful job. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, I'll just jump in. Um, yeah, I, I, I think there are several different versions of the Watkins movie, and some of them are longer than six hours. There's like a seven hour and eight hour and so on. Um, but the good thing is it's now available on YouTube, um, so you, it is easier to find and, and watch uh, today. And I'd recommend everybody um, who gets a chance uh, sees it because it's, it's a great movie and you learn a lot about the commune uh, from it. Um, uh, in terms of the, the other questions, um, police abolition, yeah, I don't think we can 
directly draw lessons from what happened in the commune for you know today in the United States or other modern capitalist states. I mean, the police is such a bigger institution today than it was in the 19th century when it was actually quite new. And at the time of the commune, um, a, a lot of the police fled to Versailles uh, 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 in March, uh, including most of the upper echelons of the of the police. So the people who were left would have been sort of like the local constabulary, um, and um, they put them under democratic control. Basically, I mean, um, uh, could they have gone further? Maybe. Um, uh, I think the general idea was that whatever form of public safety is necessary needs to be under the control of the, the population that is being um, protected. Um, and certainly the, you know, the existence of the political police and the police as a repressive institution um, had at the very least been greatly diminished. But I don't think we can draw immediate lessons for that for the, the U.S., uh, today or other, you know, advanced capitalist countries, we have to figure out how we're going to deal with the police uh, in our own in our own circumstances. Um, in terms of Kautsky, well, I mean, I'm, you know, it's not surprising. I don't think that Kautsky um, uh, looked to the commune. I mean, Kautsky never gave up regarding himself as a Marxist, even a revolutionary. <laughs> um, but um, uh, uh, certainly, he had very much diverged, I think, from um, uh, from Marx's conception of what a revolution was by uh, so, you know by the time of the First World War. Um, but yeah, he could still he could still look at the ideals of the commune and think that he wanted those in practice, even if he thought that he could get to them by some smoother uh, method than uh, I would think is uh, is 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 possible. Um, just a final comment I'll make. You know, um, uh, Gilbert said that in the 20th century, the commune was largely seen as a negative model. And I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think that I think that people have looked to the positive aspects as you know, as well as the uh, as well as the defeat. When Lenin danced in the snow, it was not uh, he's not dancing on the grave of the commune. It was the it, haven't we done? You know, the commune lasted for two months. We've survived a, a day longer, and that was you know a, a huge achievement. And he had just written um, State and Revolution, and Chapter Three of State and Revolution is is all about you know, it's analyzing what Marx says about the Paris Commune, um, and it focuses just on those points that Gilbert was talking about, the key political changes, the, the need to dismantle the old state machinery and replace it with truly democratic forms of governance. So um, at least I've always looked at the commune both in those terms and also in, you know, with the question of how can you do better, um, which was you know, very much on the minds of the of the Russian revolutionaries, certainly is on Trotsky's mind um, uh, as the civil war begins, because they did what Gilbert was talking about that the commune didn't do. I mean, they set up an army and a very, you know, hierarchical and disciplined um, uh, military machine. Did they have any alternative? I, 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 I guess they did not, because if they hadn't have done that, they would have been overrun by the white armies supported by, uh, you know, the major imperialist powers. Um, did it have a... Uh, a negative effect on the course of the revolution. I think it had a lot of negative effects, um, uh, and that, together with 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 the isolation, led led to its led to its defeat. Um, so these are complex problems. I mean, I want to celebrate what happened with the commune, but also, 
you know, it's raised questions for us, which I don't think that we have all the answers to um, at, at this point. And they're going to face every, you know, uh, radical movement that wants fundamental change in in the future. Great. Thank you so much. And um, Gilbert, there was another question that was specifically targeted to you, which I'm going to throw out, given that the Carolyn and Phil have both addressed those other questions. The question was, if we think cities can be the anchor of multiple struggles with expansive political form, do we like Leclerc and Mouffe side with populism based on chain of signifiers without class struggle? So that's a question about your, you know, what you mean by cities can be the anchor of multiple struggles with expansive political form. Um, and also somebody did ask if, if anyone's aware of personal records of individual Paris communards or works about them. So if, if um, Gilbert, you have any recommendations there, that would be great. Yep. Um, yes. Uh, Thank you. Uh, well, first about uh, this this issue of, of the, the 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 cities. Um, uh, I mean, if Marx says of the Paris Commune that's the the government of the working class, so what do you say of of cities of today, which uh, with societies which are much more proletarianized than they they were at the time of of Marx and the Paris Commune? So uh, uh, the the idea that that would be populism or, or, or not, I mean, class politics can very much be uh, uh, practiced uh, at the level of the city and in struggles that are organized at the level of the city. And we see that every day. So there is no contradiction between the class perspective and uh, uh, the urban the urban setting. The idea that the only place where class perspective can work is the workplace is, uh, is very, very, uh, um, I mean, uh, very reductionist, I would say. Now, more generally about the, the, the issue of, of uh, the, the, uh, the, the commune and that model of radical democracy and the relation to this, uh, this uh, I, the, the idea of the police. Let me say one thing, as the only non-American member of this, uh, of this panel, uh, that, uh, uh, well, uh, we have to keep in mind that among the bourgeois democracies, uh, the most radical, keeping in mind also, of course, the, the severe limitation at the racial and gender uh, levels uh, uh, of uh, what uh, the early American democracy was, but, I mean, if you put this aside, as you would uh, do for slavery with the Athenian democracy, you get into a, a, a model that is the closest among those bourgeois models that we know, the bourgeois constitutions that we know, uh, to, to radical democracy in the sense of, I mean, I, the, 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 what you had, uh, whether the, the, uh, the, the uh, I think there, there was a dimension of, uh, of, uh, of revocability, but there's also the frequency of elections election, which is, you know, much, uh, much higher than than anywhere else. Every two years, uh, the, the sheriffs and all that, the police, I mean, originally was also elected. And uh, and uh, and so you have a number of institutions uh, of the early American uh, model that uh, come close to to uh, to what uh, the the communal uh, 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 where 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 we're doing now the idea the key, the basic idea and that's the most important one is the abolition of the state as a separate institution and that means the absorption of the state by civil society so the abolition of this dichotomy between civil society and the state uh, 
and and the, the 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 merge of the state. There's all state functions should become and become part uh, of the of uh, I mean integrated by the society by civil society and. Uh, uh, done, executed, implemented by civil society, democratically organized, uh, and the rest. That's the key point. And this principle applies to all institutions of the states, the police, the, the, the army, the bureaucracy, whatever. Uh, this this elective and revocable and uh, uh, permanently, I mean, uh, democratically organized and controlled model, that's the, the, the I, I think, the, the, this uh, secret of, of the commune uh, that uh, which is not so much a secret as I explained. Actually, um, these principles were implementing ideas that that existed uh, since the the 18th century, uh, and uh, that you had uh, even at the time of the French Revolution, but never implemented in the form uh, in this concentration uh, condensated form that the Paris uh, Paris Commune is, and that's why I think the Paris Commune. Uh, is uh, 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 I mean remains uh, a very relevant uh, uh, model and probably more than than ever today. Um, uh, well, uh, on on this issue of negative model that Phil uh, uh, questioned, I'm referring actually to one of the articles you mentioned, which gives you at length. I can't remember which of the two, which gives you at length, uh, probably Traverso's article, uh, uh, quotes and all that to show you how much, uh, uh, if you put aside state and revolution, where Lenin will again go back to the model of the commune and the civil war in France, but how how, how much it was seen as the, the 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 errors not to commit again because that ended in such a tragic tragic way. So that's that's what I, I was uh, saying. Of course, it it remained. I mean, civil war in, in France remained all the time a, cla- a big major classic of Marxism, and uh, uh, um, the, the key point is, uh, I mean. This the the this today is more important than any any limitations and uh, and we haven't seen yet models of revolution that were more successful eventually because uh, seventy three days or or seventy months if you end up in a disaster that's not the major difference so the key point here is that we have seen a model that requires, and that was my, my last point, and it's, it will be again, that requires the, 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 the winning over the vast majority of society. That's our conceptions of revolution, not revolutions done by a minority like in Blanqui's kind of perspective, but revolutions done by the vast majority. And that's how you can implement this radical democracy that the Paris Commune uh, uh, implemented at the level of one city. And I can't imagine a a better note to end on than that. Uh, I want to just thank all three of our speakers. I know that we all know so much more about the commune and its implications now than we did an hour and a half ago. I want to make a quick plug in response to the question about readings for Carolyn's forthcoming book, The Paris Commune, A Brief History. People should look out for that. Um, And then we're at time. So thank you for everybody who came out today. And um, I hope to see you at future events. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you, Ellen. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. 
And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.